This talk by John Sutherland, called Mindfulness and Concentration, was given at the Desert Rain Retreat in Tucson, Arizona, on March 3rd, 2012. I wanted to start tonight talking a little bit about mindfulness practice and particularly in relationship to concentration practice. And this seemed like a, a good thing to take a look at um, as we approach the threshold of moving between retreat and not retreat life. Because there's something a little bit like the relationship between mindfulness and concentration practice and between retreat and non-retreat life. Although um, there doesn't need to be quite as strong a distinction, and that's one of the things I'd, I'd like to talk about tonight. Um, when we return to the other things we do in our lives, be- besides spending time on retreat, generally when we're walking around, when we're off the cushion, we're doing some form of mindfulness practice as opposed to a concentration practice. But... Um, we can expand, perhaps, and deepen our sense of what is possible with a mindfulness practice if we return it to its natural coupling with concentration. I started thinking about this because it seemed um, to me that the way the Buddha Dharma had landed in the West was as mindfulness. That seems to be the thing that's kind of caught on. And you see... Um, mindfulness programs in everything from Fortune 500 companies to medical schools and and, and elementary schools. Um, and that seems like a good thing. The version of mindfulness that, that has seemed to catch hold in the culture is something like paying attention, being aware, noticing what's around you, doing being present when you when you do things. And it would be difficult to argue against that <laughs> as, as something to do. Then um, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, I heard someone on the radio say, talk about Buddhist meditation, or as it's also known, mindfulness. And then I thought, well, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm not sure that those are exact synonyms. Um, and it seemed to me that... that Um, when you separate out mindfulness from concentration, you do get these ideas like paying attention and being aware and being present and all that. But I I was interested in putting mindfulness back in its context, back in its coupling with concentration, to see what might happen with that. And I think there are some things there that might be helpful to us in our um, non-retreat, walking around kinds of lives. In, in our practice, we think of it as a three-legged stool, and the three legs of the stool are concentration, mindfulness, and inquiry. That's what the koans bring. And generally, I'm speaking in, in very broad strokes here, but generally, concentration practice is that which brings our attention in and kind of down so that we're focused, our attention is extremely focused, and um, we tend to pull it in away from um, stimuli around us in the world. 
so you might think of it as a kind of laser light. Everything gets concentrated into this, into this bright laser light. And when we do that, we can sink into those quite peaceful and still places that are beloved by us during, during a retreat. And um, with the, the grace of the meditation gods, sometimes we can even fall out of the bottom of that samadhi, which is what that's called, those samadhi states, into the vastness itself. Concentration practice can take us right down through an intense stillness into the vastness. So that's the laser light. And on the other hand, mindfulness is um, a kind of spreading of our attention, our awareness outward to take in the other, all the others that are around us. And we might think of that as a kind of diffuse light in contrast to the laser light of concentration, where it's as though our awareness is um, moving out into the world and looking to touch what is around us and come into um, some kind of awareness of, of those things around us. There is um, a kind of natural tension between those two practices. One moves in and down and is very focused. The other moves out uh, and is more diffuse. But what I want to say is that, that I think that that tension is a creative one. I don't think it's a problem. And I don't think that the, the resolution of the tension is to choose one or the other, although that's often seemed to have been the case in the history of um, meditation traditions. People sort of land on one side or the other. But I don't, I don't think we need to or should choose between the two. But look for the ways that the two have a kind of creative tension that, that actually um, deepen and, and enrich each other. Another way we could think about the relationship is between um, inhale and exhale. If concentration is a kind of inhale, mindfulness becomes the necessary exhale. And we, and we can alternate those um, back and forth in some way. Okay, so both practices work to do maybe the most important job that a Buddhist practice can do, which is to unself us, to knock us off our self-centeredness. And they do it in different ways. A concentration practice unselfs us, unself-centers us, by bringing us down into states of samadhi and eventually into the vastness. And suddenly we see how really giant, how really large and spacious and eternal things are. And we're knocked right off of any sense of the um, special importance of the self when we see the self in its real context, which is something so large, so eternal, so infinite, um, that the idea of a self becomes funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mindfulness also unselfs us, unself-centers us, but in the opposite direction, in a different way. As our awareness moves out into the world, we necessarily encounter all of the others that 
um, surprisingly share this world with us. <laughs> Who knew? Um, and we begin to, um, to take note of those others, which is to say really notice them, really feel them, really begin to have a sense of them. And as we do that, as we take genuine, sincere note of all the others, um, our allegiance begins to shift from the individual personal story that is generally running most of the time in our lives toward this larger, giant narrative, which includes um, all of the many beings and um, selves there are in the, in the world. And um, we move beyond that small story of our own lives into um, something that, that includes everything that not only is visible to us or experienceable by us, but everything that is imaginable by us as well. So on a mindfulness of, of our imaginations, we ride out into this vastly expanded sense of what um, reality is. And that contrasts starkly with our previous sense of the personal story that seemed to define reality. And then one of the things we, we discover, as we quite often talk about and have already talked about this week, that awakening is not an introverted, internal, solitary event. That awakening is something that happens in relationship, in that reality which is the space among all of us, the space that all of us make together. Um, we begin to see through mindfulness, if, if in concentration we see the unity of all things, we see the way that everything is... Um, one, one large, um, radiant thing. With mindfulness, we see the differences and the particularities of things, and they become real to us through those very differences and particularities. Um, we come to love things for their thingness, which um, is what we call Tathagata, their thusness, their suchness, their um, complete kaniness. The complete kaniness of kani is her tathagata. And through mindfulness, we come to love that, not kani in the abstract or kani as um, something we feel um, that we're just, we're a sort of vanilla oneness. But kani in all her specificity, in all her particularity, um, that mindfulness brings that to life, brings the specificity, the tathagata of Kani to life, and that becomes something we, we love. So that becomes the sense of the real, the taste of it, the, the, the look of it, the smell, the touch, all of that particularity becomes, um, becomes real. Um, becomes real. And then, because we haven't uncoupled mindfulness from concentration practice, we're simultaneously aware that everything is real because it is an equal manifestation of the vastness. It's real because it's particular, it's itself, it's unique, it's irreproducible, it's beautiful for all of those reasons, and it's real because it is 
a manifestation of the vastness equal to every other manifestation, including ourselves. So when you don't uncouple mindfulness and concentration, you get both senses of what is real. And I think those are, those are important together. And then, if we bring in um, a sense of, of Western philosophical language, <clears throat> we might say that because things are equally real as manifestations of the vastness, equally particular, um, equally uniquely themselves, they have a moral claim on us by their existence, by their particularity, they ask something of us. And so mindfulness becomes, in part, a way of trying to to discern, to be sensitive to what the claim is that each other has on us. What is our responsibility toward them? So when you bring these two senses of reality um, together, the one from concentration of the, the largeness and mysteriousness of things, and the one, the reality from mindfulness of the particularity and uniqueness of things, you get a view of reality as, um, I made a list, gigantic, mysterious, uncontrollable, completely and inextricably interpermeated, and it asks something from us. You need both of those together to get that whole big picture. But that sense, which we can touch so deeply in retreat, of reality as gigantic, mysterious, uncontrollable, completely and inextricably interpermeated, and asking something of us, that sense we can take back across the threshold into ordinary walking around life and make part of our mindfulness, to remain mindful of that experience of reality all the time. When we look at it that way, it becomes really clear that Contrary to what you might believe reading some of the marketing, the goal of mindfulness is not personal individual happiness. The goal of mindfulness is getting closer and closer and closer to reality as it is. Happiness might well be a byproduct of that getting closer and closer to reality, but that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to be real. Um, If in becoming realer and realer, if in becoming closer to reality, you find that immediately what rises in you is a sense of happiness, which is perhaps made up of um, awe at the largeness and mysteriousness of things and joy at the beauty of the particularity of things, then cool, that's great. So then go to the next step, which is, and how do I live in this reality. If I can hold on to this sense of reality, what does that ask of me in terms of how I live my life? What's the realest way to live inside of that reality? If um, it is not immediate, spontaneous, and overwhelming happiness that arises Mm -hmm. when you contemplate 
this, um, this experience of reality. That's really important, too, because it shows you where you need to work. It shows you where the obscuration is. Um, often people will say that they get close to the vastness. They get close to that aspect of reality, and they get scared. Um, the self recoils. Something happens where things constrict again out of fear. That's really good to know because that means that it is in that place of constriction and fear that the work needs to be done so that it can be released so that you can experience the kind of reality that we're talking about. So it's kind of a no-lose situation. Either you're going to be catapulted into great happiness or you're going to get to work with the very things that keep you from great happiness so you can be catapulted into great happiness. (laughs) Not a bad deal. Um, okay, so one of the things that happens with, um, with mindfulness when, when we're focused on its unself-centering quality is that we move from mindfulness as observation, as a kind of miner's lamp of a practice. You know what I mean? You've got a miner's lamp on your forehead and, it, and you're kind of like moving it around and looking carefully at things. That's a very common idea of what, of what, of what mindfulness is. Um, but actually, with a mindfulness that isn't limited to that sense of I am walking through the landscape observing what is happening. I am being mindful. I am being careful. I am doing this with great attention. I, 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 I. <laughs> the danger there, of course, is that all it does is reinforce the sense of an I. Okay? That's the, that's the warning about, about, that, about practicing mindfulness like that, is here I am being mindful. You know? um, but if we drop that, if we drop that miner's headlamp sense of what mindfulness is, um, w- what do we find? You on retreat this week, I'm certain, have experienced this. We find that things are gazing back at us. It is not just a matter of us walking through the landscape noticing stuff. Stuff is noticing us all the time. The trees, the rocks, the goats doing that beautiful display. You, just, you, know, you think they didn't do that for us? Oh, they, they sure did. They sure did. They're so <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. There's... Um, there's a wonderful uh, Yunmen koan where there's a, there's a monastic who I imagine is having that kind of um, look that, that, that some of you had today, you know, deep in a retreat and a little bit, a little bit spacey and um, a little bit blissed. And, um, and Yunmen said, so, so where have you been? What have you been up to? And the, and the monastic says, I've been talking to a rock. <laughs> and and Yinman said, "Well, good. Did the rock reply to you?" And the and the monastic doesn't know how to answer, and so Yinman answers for him and says, "That rock was nodding at you long before you spoke." <laughs> right? That's something we know from retreat, and that's something we can carry with us—a mindfulness, not just of us, you know, from from our heads out, but of what is gazing back at us. What is our mutual gaze? And that, too, is Tathagata. That is the, the thus come, the arrival of everything into our sensory field, into the field of our hearts, uh, into the field of our imaginations, Tathagata. Then we begin to see that 
um, actually more than this kind of here I am walking through the landscape kind of feeling, we become aware of our experience as a sort of field of awareness. There's a kind of field radiating off of us, and it's entering a much larger field made of the fields of awareness of everything else around us. We are part of, we are interpermeating and interpermeated by this field of awareness made up of all of the warm intelligences of everything, all of the others, as well as of ourselves. Um, this field of awareness is as big as you will let it be. It has no natural boundaries. It has no self-limitations. It will go out and out and out and include as much as it's as, as you are able to allow it to include in your imagination. Um, so I, I, I will stop soon, but I, I wanted to mention one other thing that, that I find um, very interesting. When we turn this kind of mindfulness inward toward the inner landscape of our thoughts and feelings, the terrain of our heart-minds, something different happens. If turning mindfulness out toward all the others of the world tends to increase their vividness for us, we tend to become more aware of their Tathagata so that they become more and more, Connie becomes more and more Connie. Um, So there is a vivifying of our experience of the world. Interestingly, when we turn that same kind of mindfulness inward, the opposite happens. Our thoughts and feelings become less substantial, less vivid, less assertive, less uh, compelling. All of those things are reduced. And I've been wondering if there isn't a great leveling process going on with mindfulness where it's sort of amping up our perceptions of everything else and amping down our perceptions of our own thoughts and feelings so that they're meeting in some kind of equal field, some field of of equality, where we can experience the field of awareness extending into us as well as from us and among everything else and at the same valence, inside as outside. And when that happens, when our... um, when our thoughts and feelings become more suffuse, become less preemptory, less insistent, um, they take their natural perspective, their natural proportion in that field of awareness, and they become things among many things rising and falling in that field of awareness. They lose their pride of place. We begin to even forget why we ever found them so almighty compelling over everything else. And that also is a movement toward realism, toward a movement of a truer and realer experience of the way things are. Everything rising and falling together. And that awareness is absolutely something we can take with us walking around every day in everything we do. We can um, hold that field. We can hold that equality of inside and outside and, um, and really 
change our sense of what is real, what is important, and what it means to live a life in that reality. Nothing special, no special practice, no special circumstances necessary. That's a walking around practice that we can take with us from the retreat right across the threshold and into wherever it is we find ourselves in the weeks and the months and the years after that. Thank you. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.